Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. <laughs> I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm a writer and an investigative journalist trying to take on corruption, big brands, environmental destruction, you know, all of the things that are making life more difficult for your average Joe. Uh, you can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com, where, most importantly, you can sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. And if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, if you really enjoy it, if you get a lot out of it, you can choose to take out a paid subscription, which obviously supports me and my work, and I'd be very, very grateful to you. On this week's show is Dan Liebsen, a long-time activist in the alternative economy space. And I mean, long time. Dan has been doing this before this was even a thing. Um, Dan joins me to talk about how expensive it is to be poor. He set up an alternative cash checking franchise in San Francisco, an alternative cash checking shop in San Francisco, where essentially people can come in and check their cash for a much lower rate than other uh, predatorial cash checking franchises. Through this, it's kind of developed as well into providing financial education for low-income and very low-income people. He provides loans as well to low-income and very low-income people because he says that the financial systems the banks put in place essentially trap people into poverty, make it much more difficult to overturn credit scores and force people to rely on essentially black market uh, economy like payday loans that are just there to take advantage of them. Dan knows all of these systems inside out. It was such a pleasure to speak with him. In fact, I just kind of <laughs> sat back and let his knowledge carry this conversation. What I think is most important is it provides an understanding of what is going on and analysis and then a framework of how to combat it. This is a vital conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Here's Dan. This is so exciting for me uh, because you've been doing your project for years, much longer than lots of other projects in the alternative economy space. So you're a real expert and I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So I was doing some research, diligent research on community check cashing. Um, but I feel like you introducing it would be much more effective <laughs> because finance, as much as I love these conversations, finance is not my strong point. Well, I'm, I'm sort of self-taught as well. So it's, uh, it's a learning process, I think, for all of us. It's not something that we unfortunately learn as we're going through school or with our families, uh, which would actually be a good thing if yeah. if we did <clears throat> excuse me if we were able to learn those kinds of things. Our our nonprofit is called Community Development Finance, and we've worked on several things. Community check cashing is is one of the uh, it has been our core program, but we've done other things as well. This is an aside. Since you can you'll be editing this, I uh, I I did another podcast. And it was for larger types of issues about economic development and um, how to work in low-income neighborhoods, mm. uh, what kinds of things can you do. 
If you wanted to see that, I could send that to you. Oh, I would love to. And I would actually love to get into that as well during our talk. I think it was, um, uh, it, it's a really important issue. Uh, well, it's more than an issue. It's a life and death situation. Mm. Um, from my perspective, a lot of the issues that are affecting, especially low-income neighborhoods, it has to do with access to capital. Mm -hmm. Access to capital in for low-income neighborhoods, for, for the small businesses, for the individuals, it's extremely difficult for a variety of reasons. And without adequate access, uh, neighborhoods can shrivel and die uh, or have immense difficulty. Same things, of course, with the businesses in the individuals, it can be extremely difficult to maintain any kind of adequate life as well as uh, advance in your life. This is true in the U.S., it's true around the world. By the way, is, is the audience a U.S. audience or international? It's international. Okay, thank you. So I'll, uh, I'll think of it in those terms. Um, with community with community check cashing uh, I started working on it it took 10 years to put the whole thing together wow. there is no there is no information about it about check cashing uh, I, I started another nonprofit uh, before this and I built that up it was called I called it the low-income housing fund its name has changed since to the low-income investment fund uh, we had offices in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. We were opening in uh, Washington. And uh, we, we, we lent to other nonprofits for low-income housing, uh, for development uh, and creation of their offices or community facilities, health centers, uh, art centers, a whole variety, child care, a whole variety of of issues that were necessary in, in community development. And we were in a, probably 20 some states. So I'd go to these, I'd, I'd go around, I'd look at these projects in different places and I'd see check cashing stores. I didn't quite know what they were. Nobody really had any sense of them. So when I started this new nonprofit, uh, I, I wanted to look into this, and it was very, very difficult to find out information. The information wasn't there. Uh, it's not like if you wanted to start a business to make refrigerators or something, you could find out a great deal about it, especially these days <laughs> on the Internet. Um, this, this business, the information is really tightly held. So it took a while to find that information. I wrote a long report. Um, and then a business plan after a while, then I had to raise money. And then um, I had to find a location. The whole, th the whole process took about 10 years to, before we were able to open. And we opened uh, May 1st, 2009. Our, our goal is to help low-income communities with access to capital in a, in a variety of, of different ways and to help people move out of poverty as much as we possibly can, given this set of, uh, of financial services. So there's uh, a 
a whole series of things that we do. I, when I was when I was looking at the at this industry, I saw a couple of things. Uh, one of them was that they charge a lot of money, and that you could um, probably lower the prices and and be able to keep your doors open. Of course, that that was going to be a, a delicate balance. So I, I my thought was to try to start something with much lower prices. A lot of people want check cashers and payday lenders to just go away. I, I don't see that happening. I, I see them in, they're very widespread in Europe or similar types of institutions in variations around the country. They've also existed in the United States since uh, major urbanization started in the United States um, in the late 1800s. There have been variations of these types of businesses and these types of financial services, basically because people don't make enough money and they they get really stretched. They're not paid adequately in in the, this economy, so these other services have developed. Um, Could you explain briefly uh, for us Europeans what a check cashing is? Exactly. It's like where you take your check to go and get money, get the money that it's due, that's on it. Uh, that that's one of the services. There are there's large numbers of people in the United States who do not have bank accounts, mm, okay. and they don't have bank accounts for a variety of reasons. Many of them, uh, in my opinion, and some people would argue, many people would argue with me, but in my opinion. Um, banks and credit unions don't really want these customers for a whole variety, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, I, I've actually there's I've written a number of policy papers. One of them is on this in on our website communitydevelopmentfinance.org. It's it's in a paper um, about payday loans, and in there I talk about why credit unions and um, uh, banks are very, uh, don't, don't want these customers. A lot of people here in the United States want banks and credit unions to solve this issue. They also more recently want uh, uh, the U.S. Post Office to solve the issue, and they also uh, are looking at fintech financial technology companies, new companies to do this. And I don't think any of them really is going to be able to solve this sustainably at any kind of scale. They don't want to um, for uh, for a variety of reasons. I They make much more money, banks and credit unions in particular, um, and much more easily from other customers mm. in a variety of different ways. I, I can go into a lot of a lot of detail, if you, or more detail, if you want. But um, there, uh, uh, in 1999, there was a change in our in our banking laws, which had existed since the Depression. It was called the Glass-Steagall Act, and it was basically um, repealed so that banks could go away from the core retail banking. They were allowed to go into mergers and acquisitions. They go into trading, 
stocks. They do a whole variety of other types of activities. So retail banking, uh, it, it depends. It, it, each quarter it varies depending on the economic conditions, but they're making a lot of money from these uh, other sources as well. And then in terms of retail banking, uh, since the, the Great Recession in 2008, 9, 10, um, there's been enormous wealth that's been created here in the U.S. and around the world and great inequality as a result. Uh, but there's so many more people with so much more money, it's relatively easier. You can, you can work with one or two families and earn the same kind of money that you could from working with three or 500 uh, low-income yeah. households to set up accounts. Yeah. Everybody here wants people to have free checking accounts and free savings accounts. Uh, it costs money to, to operate those accounts. Now, the banks make enormous amount. I, I track the quarterly profit statements from, from the banks, and they're making enormous profits, enormous. Um, Chase, for example, the last few quarters, it makes the most. They, they're making $9, $10 billion net profit a quarter. And uh, B of A, which was trailing for quite a long time, is now starting to catch up. Wells Fargo got hammered because of their massive illegal activities. <laughs> so they had to pay a lot of fees. Um, and uh, as a result, their profits were down, but they're, they're starting to get through all that. So their profits are way up in city. City uh, is doing really well as well. And it's not only, again, in the retail banking, but it's in these other areas, um, investments and mergers and acquisitions other types of activities that they're now allowed to undertake. So it, the, the, the mix varies, but they're making massive amounts of money. Uh, they could do these things uh, for free or for much lower costs. That would cut into their profits somewhat. They're, it's, they're in competition, it's competitive market, it's capitalism. So uh, it's very difficult to to push them in those directions. Um, they're also closing down branches. Uh, uh, fairly extensively, they were growing for quite a long time in terms of number of branches. Now, the reverse has been happening for at least probably a decade or so. Mm. And disproportionately, the, the branches that are being closed are in low-income neighborhoods. Oh, really? And again, for obvious economic reasons, if you're in a low-income neighborhood, there's less money there, they make less money off of those branches. They make more money off of branches in middle and upper-income neighborhoods. It's, it's pretty easy. Uh, there have also been uh, efforts that have failed. The Federal Deposit, FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which insures bank accounts here in the United States, had a pilot program. They tried to get banks to make uh, small loans to um, low-income individuals and households. It, it was not successful. San Francisco had a program with credit unions called Payday Plus, where credit unions could, were supposed to make loans to low-income individuals that lasted 
not very long and, and that program closed. Uh, it's very difficult to make these things work economically. I just want to ask, um, because you said it's difficult to make money in this sector of the industry. And yet, if you look at the profits that the banks are making every quarter, um, I mean, surely, actually, there's still a way to make a lot of money and have your necessary profits and provide people with the access to capital that they also need. There, there are, are different ways to, to make money. One of the ways in which banks make money is when you put money into the bank, they then uh, lend it out. Yeah. And you, when you put money into the bank, they pay you right now 0.01% or foreign interest when they lend it out. Even though interest rates are low, it's still multiple times the interest rate that they're paying you. Mm. That's called a spread. That spread um, is to some degree what banks make money off of uh, in, in traditionally in retail banking. If you're a low income household, let's say you make $2,000 or $2,500 a month here in the Bay Area, that doesn't go very far. So you deposit your checks are deposited. And then at the, at the, during the month, uh, you have to withdraw the funds in order to cover your expenses. So we, we see people's bank statements all the time. At the end of the month, there's $2.35 left. So there isn't that money or something like that. So there isn't that money left in the account for the banks to go out and lend it. Yeah. So they're servicing them, but they're not making money off of them. So the way they develop to make money off of them is through fees, in particular through overdraft fees. And overdraft fees, in my opinion, are significantly worse than payday loans. They have a higher annual percentage interest rate that's paid. They're, they're reported to, um, to the credit uh, rating bureaus. Uh, there's a whole series of reasons why the overdrafts are, uh, in my opinion, much more problematic. It's also interesting that people look at payday loans and they talk about the high fees. Uh, overdrafts are about almost four times more fee generating here in the United States for banks and credit unions than fees for payday loans. I didn't know that. The fees for payday, the fees, annual fees for payday loans are around seven to nine billion dollars. The fees, there's four different kinds of overdrafts, um, where or four different situations where you can get overdrafted uh, with your with your account, um, with checks, and in a couple of other ways. And those fees are over thirty billion dollars a year. They were they were at thirty six billion. They they went. There was legislation that was passed that had some limits on it. The banks found ways around it, and the fees are back up well over thirty billion dollars again compared to the fees from from payday loans. Can I just clarify though? Is that because more people are going into their overdraft than getting payday loans? Is that the discrepancy, or is it actually in how much they can charge? Well. 
the majority of the overdrafts are paid by uh, a relatively smaller band of uh, people who are called multiple overdrafters. Oh dear. And so, I mean, we've we've seen low-income people paying. It's shocking, but paying two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars a year. We we see people's bank statements, and they're paying that kind of money. People often are paying two, three hundred a month mm. for overdraft fees. So if you're making two thousand dollars and you're barely getting by, and you have to pay that kind of extra money, which again is significantly more. Basically, an overdraft is a loan. Yeah. It's a short-term loan, but it's a much higher interest rate. Mm. The average the average uh, overdraft is somewhere around forty forty to fifty dollars, and the the typical fee is around. It varies from credit unions are lower, banks are higher, but it's usually between twenty eight and thirty five dollars. So you you overdraft for forty or fifty dollars, and you pay a thirty five dollar fee. Then the banks go back, and if you haven't repaid it after a period of time, two or three days, they can charge you again and again. So, uh, and people don't even know that they've overdrafted. Yeah. There's no trans. There's very little transparency. Banks also have what's called check systems. Are you familiar with check systems? No. Check systems is a is a uh, system where if if you've had problems with your checking account, you go on a list called check systems. They will not give you an account at that bank. And once you're on check systems, if you go to another bank, the other banks are able to check it and look at that list. And basically, you are unable to get an account for about five for five years. What? Five years and define problem. Pardon me? Define problem, like if, if people have a problem with their checking account, in what respect? Like if they don't if, have the money to put into it? If they've overdrafted and can't repay it. By like $40? Well, if they've overdrafted, but then they, they've, got to re, they've got to repay that, plus they've got to pay the fee. Yeah. And they can get uh, banned. But if they, they wouldn't do it one time, but if people do a lot of that... Um, or it, 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 where where they're where they're creating higher costs for the banks, then they'll they'll put them on there. Um, if they don't pay off a loan, say they have a loan, um, if they bounce checks, a lot of people will bounce checks. It's interesting. With this is this is a, an aside. They passed a law here in around two thousand and four. Um, which allowed, how did that work? Uh, people used to write a check and they knew that the check wouldn't clear for a couple of days. And they basically used that and they knew in a couple of days they'd have the money. But they passed um, uh, a law uh, allowing when it when it, when a check is put into the in in the bank, 
it, it goes much more quickly. The time to have it cashed is reduced significantly. So that's, some people say that that's when the payday loan industry really started to grow. Oh, uh, okay. Because it replaced it. I don't know if that's accurate or not. There, there hasn't been a study, but I, I found that to be an interesting possibility. Have I answered your question about... God, you've just these made kinds me think of, of about 20 others. <laughs> <laughs> but but what, what, what's, what's interesting is that on the one hand, people are squeezed by the uh, payday lenders and check cashers. They're also squeezed by the banks. Mm. The banks don't want them. They don't want people coming in with two hundred or five hundred or thousand dollar checks that are going to be gone. They don't want them filling up their uh, uh, lobbies. They also are moving towards digital wallets and all sorts of digitization of the banking, which are elements that are that low income people are much slower to adopt. Mm. Um, so uh, all of these types of issues are moving people away from uh, making it much more difficult for people to have bank accounts. Which makes them incredibly vulnerable to the check cashing units that are not yours, which are charging them huge amounts just to... Well, both it. types of institutions prey on... Uh, on low-income people. Hmm. And it, it just makes it very difficult. The other, another really crucial issue is that people talk mostly about check cashers and payday lenders here in the U.S. I, I read about similar types of things in Europe okay. and to some degree in, in uh, other developing countries. Uh, what is what is going on here? In my opinion, it's I, I disagree with it. It's not it's not payday lenders and check cashers. There's an entire industry of financial services, a full range of institutions that services low and very low income people, and it's just not those two uh, businesses. It's many more. They charge much higher rates and fees. Uh, and you can get trapped in in what they're uh, doing with you, and it makes it much more difficult to get out of poverty. So uh, I'm talking about um, pawn shops. There are more pawn loans in the United States than there are payday loans, significantly more. Uh, I'm talking about what are called rent-to-own stores. Uh, rent-to-own. You if you if you want to buy a TV or a computer or a piece of furniture, a sofa or a refrigerator. There are stores that are set up. You can go into them and you pay them on a monthly basis, renting them until you paid off the whole thing. The issue is that they cleverly set up the monthly payment to be affordable, but the total amount and number of payments ends up being two or three times what you might pay if you had a credit card and you went to a department store to buy the same article. Yeah. So again, people are preying on low-income people. Um, and so there's pawn shops, rent to own, 
there's car title. Uh, there, yeah, car title. A, car title loans are very high interest loans. People don't have access to be able to go to a credit union or a bank and get a car loan because they have bad credit. And so they go to, they buy a car off of a, off of a used car lot here in, in their low-income neighborhoods. The lender, the, the, car, the car lot company takes the title to the car and charges them a very high interest rate. If they don't pay it, they take back the car literally off the street you see i've seen over the over the year over the last few years there are very very fancy flatbed trucks rolling around the streets all new very expensive they go out and pick up these cars that where the owners haven't paid they just take back the the car God. and they're able to do it they're able they they have they from a distance they can lock the car if the person hasn't paid. They can lock the car so the person can't use it or move it. And then they 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 have location devices, the tech, the new technologies, so they can go out the GPS, so they can go out and um, pick up the car. Good God! I mean, I do see a lot of articles um, explaining that it's much more expensive to be poor than it is to be rich. Yes. And people now talk pretty fluently about the cycle of poverty. It's not just a static state. It's something that compounds itself and is extremely difficult to get out of because of the precarity that people are forced into. Um, there, was a book, there was a book called The Poor Pay More. It was written in 1963 by David Kaplowitz. I have a copy of it here. Um, None of this is new. Yeah. All this stuff has been going on for decades and literally hundreds of years. This is this is the situation that that low income people face, unfortunately. Um, and that's that's exactly the issue that we've tried to address. We focus our efforts on very low and low income people especially those with bad credit. In the US, our credit system uh, is based on FICO scores and now something called Vantage scores and um, just uh, variations. And they, they run, credit scores run from 300 to 850. Each different uh, financial service product, credit card, a car loan, a home loan, has a different minimum credit score, a floor on the credit score that is acceptable. But they're roughly around 600. So if you've got a credit score below 600, it's very difficult for you to go to a bank or a credit union or, or to a store to get a credit card. Um, it's, it's, you're, you're, out of the system and you're you're much more into the system of this full range of uh, financial services institutions that serve low-income people with bad credit and it makes it very there is also uh, subprime credit cards and they have extremely high interest rates they usually have a, a cap of around 
400 or $500 on what you can spend. And when you get the card, they charge you fees of $350. So there's almost nothing left to be able to spend. And, and then you're paying very high rates. This is, this is the financial system that low-income people have to navigate. And it's extremely difficult and very painful. There's other, there's other financial services as well. Those are, the, those are some of the main ones. And sometimes people can have a mix. They can have some mainstream financial services and these other, or sometimes they're completely trapped in these, in these other services. There's also, there's also a thing um, that we have here in the U.S. I don't know if it's elsewhere. I, it, it frankly surprised me. Um, they're called friend loans. There are people in neighborhoods who make loans to people in the neighborhood. They're considered friends. Um, they charge 10, 12, 15, 20% interest per month. As friends, yeah. As friends, you cannot pay off the loan partially. You have to pay it off completely, or you have to keep paying paying the interest every month. Good God. And um, I, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't aware of them. But we, we, we do make loans to to people, and we have made fifteen, twenty loans to borrowers who had these loans and needed to pay them off so they could get a loan where it would be something they could repay rather than these other, they were trapped in that type of a loan. I thought it was just local here, but then I, I, I ran across a somewhat obscure article uh, talking about discussing the same thing that occurs in New York City neighborhood. Mm. And the people who do this, I'm sure, are not regulated or certified, um, but they're well-funded. So there's all these types of things that low-income people have to try to address, which is, which is why I wanted to set up a store to provide an alternative and to focus on, especially on people with bad credit who have low incomes to try to help them get their feet on the ground and get back into the finance, get into the financial mainstream if they wanted to, but at least be able to have a better financial foundation. So we offer the regular check cashing services. Um, we charge much, much lower prices. Can you, can you tell me what the prices are and then a comparison with what the normal rate is elsewhere? For, for example, the normal size check here in this area is between $300 and $1,000. As a fee? No, that's the size of the check. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the fee um, for, uh, for at, at the regular check cashing stores is roughly 3%. One charges 2.85% and other, others charge 3.5%. That's for a government check or a paycheck. Other checks, personal checks or uh, insurance checks or pension checks, they can, they can charge 10, 12%. What? Yeah. God, um, okay. With, 
with um, for us for the check three hundred to five hundred, three hundred to a thousand, we charge one and a quarter percent. So the difference on a five hundred dollar check, you would pay uh, fifteen to seventeen dollars and fifty cents. With us, you pay six dollars and twenty five cents. Uh, we estimate with our lower prices, and we also have financial coaching uh, with through those two things that we, on an annual basis, save people $175,000 to $225,000 a year. That's a lot of money. It's money that's exactly, it's money left in their pockets. It doesn't leave the neighborhood, it stays there. Uh, they can spend it any way they want. It, can, it stays in the neighborhood or uh, they spend in other small businesses and uh, keep other jobs going. Uh, since we've been around since 2009, we we're probably pushing $2 million in savings that we've been able to create for people is our estimate. Wow. We're very proud of that number. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a struggle to be honest. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a really important thing. I, I mentioned that when I started, when I was looking at what was going on, that I thought people were charging a, a very large amount of money and that you could reduce these prices. And that's basically what we've, what we've tried to do. We might, we, we do have trouble keeping our doors open. We've almost said to close four times. Um, but, uh, uh, Finding that balance between the pricing for the services to keep your doors open and that are uh, that produce really good savings for people, it's a it's a delicate balance. That's hmm. um, that's pretty much ongoing. That's amazing. You know, it's a it amazes me in the other sense of the word, the negative sense. Um, that it's legal or um, valid to make money off of low income and very low income, you know, vulnerable people and communities. Um, all of the literature shows that when you develop a community, when you invest in their education and when you invest in their entrepreneurship abilities and when you just invest in their well-being in general, it creates bigger streams of economy. It develops the entire neighborhood. It brings up other neighborhoods. It's it's a win-win for states, for federal governments, for people. And it just it amazes me that that's not, I don't know, forefront of every single policymaker's thoughts around the world. Like, how can we develop our people? How can we invest in them? Well, and there, there's two different situations there the invest a lot of the investment you're talking about is public investment and in the meantime there are still services that are provided by the private sector that everybody no matter what your income needs food housing all the basics plus uh, other things as well and the issue that people in the private sector raise is that when you're dealing with low-income people, especially low-income people with bad credit, that 
the risk is much higher. The losses are greater and the risk is much higher. And that's another thing that we set out to try to do, try to test. We make loans to people, to all of our customers. Again, focused on the credit scores of people 400 to 600 who are low and very low income people. We make three different kinds of loans. We've made somewhere between over the years, three and a half to $4 million in loan. Wow. One of our programs has a loss rate of 0.59%. Fantastic. <laughs> just, a little bit above, just a little bit above half a percent. Yeah. Another one has a loss rate of about 2.25%. And the third one, we've just started, we got some money in the, about a year ago to make zero interest loans. They're capped at $1,000. And we made $52,000 of loans. And we have one problem loan three, of $300. Wow. So we have not, we've had no losses. Just that we have, the, we do have this one problem loan. loan. We, even if we wrote it off, it's still 0. 0.00 something is yeah. a loss rate. Um, so what, what we've tried to do there is deal with the public and, uh, private, uh, uh, perceptions of risk and indicate that those perceptions are inaccurate and wrong and that, um, uh, that, this isn't the type of situation that, that people say. Frankly, there's also a racial issue. People look at with people of color who are receiving these loans and they say they don't repay. 96% of our borrowers are people of color and they repay. Again, we're trying to address myths that people have or misconceptions or myth conceptions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bad. Um, oh, about, like oh, thank you. Uh, that people have about what goes on in low-income communities mm. and, and, and how, uh, how, how you can deal with them. A lot of it is trust. People have been mistreated. They know they've been mistreated. They're distrustful. And you, you really need to build a, a relationship with them where they can grow. We've had, we have borrowers who started with credit scores of 500 or five or even less or 600. They now have credit scores well into a few, well into the 700, which is a very good rate and very bankable. We, we still have to charge a reasonably high interest rate ourselves. Uh, just to keep our doors open. And we tell them that they now they can go to a credit union and get much, much better rates. They won't do it. They stay with us. Mm. Because we've been able to develop a, a relationship with them. Oh, yeah, you're part of the community. Yeah. Tell me, um, what kind of changes do you see this creating in people's lives? The people that come through your doors? Do you see the difference in, I'm assuming, mental health, 
uh, well-being, physical well-being. Um, is that apparent to you? Very, actually. Uh, <clears throat> people don't have anywhere to go to talk. And again, they really have grown to trust our staff. Not everybody, but, but large numbers of people. So um, people will drop by just to, just to talk to the staff. Wow. And sometimes, sometimes it's a, a wonderful graduation, a wonderful thing. Other times it's a drive-by shooting of their, somebody in their family. Um, it just varies. But there may be, I'm sure there are mental health practitioners in the community, but either people don't know about them or they cost money or they don't trust them. So we see a lot of uh, people coming to our store just to talk. And people, people will knock on the window and wave. They'll come by, and um, that it, that that's also how we developed the financial coaching approach. Right. When when we started, I had an idea about financial coaching. It was turned out to be completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I, well, there were many things that I the ideas that I started with that were wrong. We had to scrap and redo and start over. One of them was of the financial coaching. Um, and there, I, my idea was to create financial plans for low-income people the way middle and upper-income people get a financial plan. Mm -hmm. There was absolutely zero interest. I, I would talk to people sometimes. I literally had a couple of people run out of the store <laughs> when I was trying to talk to them about it. It was, it was depressing. Um, but... We, you know, we kept looking for ways and I would see people come into the store and talk as we were just, as you were just asking about that, that very issue. And sometimes they would talk about a financial issue and the staff would, would answer it uh, there. And then they'd go back talking about something else. And then later, another day, that same person may come back for another issue. And then ultimately that person might come in and sit down and really go into a, a, a lot of the uh, more structured discussion of financial issues. So I, I, I tried to figure out how to basically formalize this informal way of working with people. And we, we, we actually... Uh, turn it into a sort of a, a type of a program. We call it um, uh, coaching at the window, at the oh, teller great. window. And so we, it, one, of the, one of the things with financial coaching here in the U.S., I imagine it's similar in Europe, there are some really, really excellent uh, financial training programs. The people who run them are really good. They're really smart. They know what they're doing. The curriculum that they're following is really um, uh, superb. In my opinion, uh, and I don't have any proof of this. There's no study or anything. But my sense of the situation is that the people who are going to those um, sessions are people 
not completely, but they tend to be people who are at the margin. Okay. People, people who have a credit score that isn't really horrible. Uh, they might not have a lot of bad debt or collections. They might not have a lot of debt, and they might have a, a relatively better income. Any of the, any mix of those, and they understand that with relatively small amounts uh, steps that they could take, that they can make some significant changes in their financial lives and their lives overall. But other people who have worse credit, who maybe have a lot of collections, who are mired in debt, um, they have a much different sense of, of what financial coaching or financial literacy training can help them with and they're much, much less interested. And what we've tried to do is find ways to reach them. And it's been difficult, uh, but I, you know, we, 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 we do it in a variety of ways. I talked about coaching at the window. Uh, we are, for one of our types of loans, we make larger, longer term installment loans. So um, we've, they're unsecured personal loans. We made um, the average loan size is around $3,500. We've made loans up to $20,000 unsecured. Wow. Uh, uh, but we require financial coaching for those loans. We've tried to require it for smaller loans but people can go down the street. They're willing to pay two or three times what we charge if they don't have to sit down for an hour and have the coaching <laughs> for a $300 loan. Oh, time is precious. <laughs> it is. And, you know, people are, people have two or three jobs. They've got kids and, and spousal relationship and um, friends and it, it, it's it's uh, it's uh, it, can, it can get pretty overwhelming, but at the same time, I think many people have also given up, or they don't think about. They think they're too far in the hole to make any real difference, which I don't think is the case. And uh, I mean, we've seen dramatic increases in people's credit scores, and people's capacity to save money. And people just all of a sudden we never see them again, <laughs> or sometimes they come back. Um, but it, it's uh, it's it's a it's an exciting thing. We we don't like not seeing them anymore, but at the same time, it's exciting to see how the, the changes in their lives. Mm. But the financial coaching uh, can, in some cases, really help do that that type of thing. We uh, we also have contracts with two low-income housing developments in San Francisco, in a low-income neighborhood, where we provide monthly workshops and one-on-one -on -one coaching with any resident who has any financial issue. And again, with the workshops, the typical workshops focus on budgeting, credit, and debt, and then these are the these are programs that nonprofits have them, banks have them. These are the ones I, I think they're really, really well done. And they have maybe 
uh, a few others. Some of them might talk about home ownership or about school debt or uh, go into other other kinds of issues. They might have five, six, seven, eight topics. With our workshops, which we've developed with the residents and with the management company and our own thoughts, we now have 25 to 30 different topics that we cover. And I think we've broken a lot of new ground in ways to think about the types of financial issues that people have to deal with and then how to present them. Fantastic. So we're, thank you, we're, we're really um, evolving in trying to work through these issues over, over a longer period of time. We're also evolving in general. The types of programs that we're doing has changed a lot, especially with the pandemic. We've developed, for example, a new financial coaching program for people who've been really impacted by the pandemic. I think uh, there, are, there are people who have been severely damaged by what's gone on with the pandemic. And I think it's gonna take many years for people who have been uh, harmed in this way to really dig themselves out, frankly. Well, I read in The Economist, I think last week, that the average wealth or the amount that Americans had in their bank account went up during the pandemic because people weren't spending. And it completely disregarded the fact that millions of people lost their jobs, that, you know, for low income and very low income people, it was impossible to food on the table sometimes. Um, I think we deliberately obfuscate the reality by talking about the economy as if there's one economy that we all exist in. No, 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 no. There's very different economies for very different people, uh, depending on their income then also depending on gender, race, neighborhood, all of these things. We don't all benefit and live in one economy. I mean, look at, you know, um, how much the wealthiest's wealth increased during the pandemic and then how hard, uh, maybe not the average person, but for low-income people, how hard they were hit and how are they going to get out of it? The minimum wage bill didn't go through. Thank you, Biden. One big promise. Um, <laughs> you know, what is ever going to change for them? And how? Yeah. How will it change? I, I, I'm a, I'm a longtime subscriber to The Economist, but I take a lot of what they say with a grain of salt. Yes. They're almost predictable in certain circumstances. And what you're talking about was an average. Yeah, the average has gone up, but that's because wealthy people have been able, especially have been able to make a lot of money and put it in the bank, not spend it and put it back in the economy, which is what the, a lot of the economists say they should have been doing. Yeah. But the average leaves out the low-income people who, are, who have been drained of funds, badly drained of funds. So... Our, our, our program tries to address that where we, I've been against incentive payments for things like this all my life. I don't think 
you should be paying people to come in for financial coaching, for example. Mm -hmm. But I changed my mind again. Uh, I, I keep having to tear up my a lot of my old ideas and and make changes. It's hard, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's but, good. <laughs> and it's important yeah. uh, to to look at circumstances. They can, circumstances keep changing. Uh, for people who've been impacted, we're now providing incentive payments. We've had to change the content of what the coaching is in a lot of ways. And uh, we're, we're lowering our interest rates on our loans in order to be able to assist them uh, more, more completely. Uh, but we have, a, we have a series of other programs as well that uh, we, ha we have to reinvent ourselves. We, we've been unable to get very much in, in the way of grants from foundation. Oh, that's interesting. So we have to um, uh, support ourselves basically through whatever earnings that we can make, our contracts and the fees that we charge in order just to keep the doors open. Uh, so we have to, we do a lot of things to try to help the community as much as possible. We have a, a program with Oakland Unified School District Schools with uh, an organization called Central Legal, which is a nonprofit legal organization. They've all been uh, generating or receiving funds. Um, they don't have an infrastructure, which we do. So we have been dispersing funds to immigrants who are here who don't have access to federal COVID relief funds. So they give us the funds. We've developed a series of procedures and documentation and methodologies to be able to disperse the funds pretty efficiently. We've dispersed about three and a half million dollars to over 7,000 people. Wow. We also have a program with the Oakland Mayor's Office where we're working on a program to support teachers of color who have trouble living in the area because it's so expensive and their salaries are really low. So the mayor has started basically a, a form of a guaranteed income support for teachers who are just starting out. And they've chosen us to administer that program. And we're now working with a group to um, uh, see how we can scale it, especially through uh, development of software program that would be then available to these are these are teachers who are involved with STEM and special education. Mm -hmm. We'd like to send it to all Oakland teachers, all teachers in the state, and all public employees. They have immense problems in the state with paying for their housing. So that's a that's a second program that we work on. We have. We've had several partnerships with financial technology companies, which have, which have taught me a lot about how we, how we can scale ourselves, um, which is, which is a, I'll, I'll take a little side track here if that's okay. Um, of course. 
the the fintech they're called fintech companies the fintechs want to they're trying to make as much money as possible so they are trying to um uh automate everything they want to digitize everything start to finish and that's just not going to that just doesn't work for the people that we work with uh, there needs to be some level of face-to-face -face, of trust interaction. Um, so m my definition of what we're trying to do is trying to find the balance. between. We do need to automate it, uh, a lot of what we're doing as much as possible in order to reduce costs. If we want to scale and really have an impact on this, we can't have brick and mortar storefronts all over the place. It's way too expensive. We need to automate uh, some of this, but what's the balance between automation and face-to-face -face <clears throat> contact? That's that's sort of for me the key issue, and we've been working on ways to uh, find that balance and to uh, develop plans for scaling. Especially for we can we could scale our check cashing, we could scale our lending, um, but. With with a balance there. God, it's so fascinating to think that there's um, like a whole sector of low income and very low income finances that has been completely sort of abandoned by, you know, the federal responsibility or you know the kind of private sector that actually wants to help people. The third sector. Um, it's amazing what you're doing. Um, so. My final question on all of this would be, in your vast expertise, what is the first or main thing that needs to be done to help low and very low income communities develop? Well, if I had, uh, if I had a magic wand, mm. I would change the tax system. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that would be the first thing. Um, just again, as an aside, um, in 2017, Trump passed a, a tax act, <clears throat> and the banks were some of the major beneficiaries. Yeah. The four largest banks in the country, Chase, Citi, B of A, and Wells, didn't lift a finger, and I think they made something like $18 billion in profit just because of the tax act from one year to the next. It's and it's unconscionable. Uh, and now they're fighting tooth and nail with, with the legislation that Biden's trying to pass. Uh, <laughs> the main thing that's holding it up is who pays for it and how. They, they want to try to rescind some of these obscene tax cuts that were made in 2017 and that Bush made earlier in 2003. Uh, but it's just, it, it, it's extremely difficult. Um, if, I, if I had a, a, another, uh, if I had a, a magic wand and had two or three wishes or a genie or something, <laughs> <laughs> I'm walking along the beach on the Riviera or somewhere. Um, I, I would change the financial system. 
to, to give people much more opportunity to be able to um, uh, get out of the financial traps. These, once, once you get in these traps, people are stuck and they're extremely hard to get out of. And even if you do, you spend an enormous amount of money to do it. We've seen, I, I've seen a, a woman, a mother who her son was in jail. She liquidated her, she had a, a 401k, a retirement plan. She liquidated everything she had in her life in order to help her son. And it, to, to this day is, it, it bothers me because of what she, what she had to go through. Um, it wasn't, he, he committed a crime. It wasn't a horrible crime, but it was still a crime. But um, she's not gonna recover from this. He, I don't know what's gonna happen to him. I find another one, I, I, people talk about education, but our, our program with the Oakland Unified School District, uh, school, we have, there are six schools that we've been working with along with Central Legal. These schools are, uh, the, the principals that we work with, the teachers that we work with, they're amazing. But um, I, I've, I've looked up the track records of these schools and their testing records are horrible. They're in the 10 percentile, 20 percent, 25 percentile. And um, I don't know, I, I, I don't know enough about the education system how to change it, but something. Get rid of standardized system. testing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of the things, but the standardized testing does tell you something. No. I think it does. No, 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 yes. no, 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 no. I don't think so at all. I think, um, I think a curriculum should be about finding individual students' passions and interests and teaching them to be critical thinkers and teaching people to pass standardized tests essentially prepares them for the life of docile citizenship that allows for exploitative financial systems and monetary systems to be created and developed for decades and decades and decades for example so i'm a big fan of uh, getting rid of standardized testing <laughs> I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that, but um, it, it's like to me, it's like the credit score. The credit score is is sort of a game. You learn you learn how to play the game and then use it to your advantage. Mm. Uh, I think they're uh, you know the SATs or the graduate record exams. There's there's some value in, in learning how to deal with those kinds of tests. I agree with you, critical thinking is the most important. I'm not sure how you, how, how you do that. I had immense problems in, in my education um, because I had an idea about what I wanted to do when I was in college. And I, had, I was given huge resistance everywhere. I went to three different universities and each place gave me all sorts of, of problems because mm. I was trying to think that way. 
But at the same time, I also have an appreciation for certain types of standard tests. I think, I think there's, there's basic information that can be useful. Sure, basic information, but you don't need to test people on it, especially when you do have such financial inequalities and discrepancies in neighborhood developments. I mean, the fact that a kid that gets to go to, I don't know, a $40,000 a year prep school gets tested on the same standardized line as somebody, you know, from a low income area in New York State, like, it's madness. Come on, get a grip. It's true. Not you. The, the people. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Yeah. Listen, Dan, I can hear my uh, family. They've put on the music. They've started cooking. They're dancing oh, downstairs. Oh, it's I'm nice. Sure, I'm sure it's going to come into the microphone. So, <laughs> And of course, I want to join them with the dancing and the cooking. Um, of course. Have fun. I have one final, final, final question. Please. Exactly as David platformed you, is there someone that you would like to platform whose work is really great, who I can then go out and interview to kind of continue, you know, this conversation? Wow, there are several people. Anything in particular that you're looking for? Mm. Um, I love everything. I want to know everything about everything. everything. Um, but this alternative financing, alternative economies, um, you know, how to help the disadvantaged. Because I've had a lot of conversations about crypto and it's all been in a really sort of abstract and fascinating uh, yeah. field. But you and David with Simbi are really the first people that are taking these theories and applying them or evolving the theory through the practice, as you've mentioned throughout this conversation so yeah people that are doing something that really has an actual concrete impact Maya Ubre is somebody who worked at the San Francisco office of financial I forget there's an E I forget what the E stands for I, under the San Francisco treasurer's office the San Francisco treasurer has been a oh I would interview the San Francisco treasurer, Jose Cisneros. Uh, there's people here trying to start a public bank, Susan Harmon. Amazing, yes. Um, she would be really good. She was also been involved with, um, they call themselves something, they were, back in Wall Street, when people were sitting in in Wall Street. Occupy. Occupy. She's, she has an Occupy background and cool. she's been organizing to uh, start a public bank. I would love to speak to her. Okay. Cisneros is a major figure in, in this field. He's, he created the bank on program, the kids, children to kindergarten, kids to kindergarten, or kids to college. That's what it's called. Mm, okay. Uh, where they, where they start in San Francisco, they, every, every kid starts with 50 bucks or something. Mm. It grows over the time so they can use it for college. Oh, fantastic. John Harrington, who's a board member of mine, who used to work in the state legislature and now um, he's a financial uh, planner. He submits um, constantly. I, I, I'm just amazed. He goes after the corporations. He puts stuff in front of their boards. Um, 
for them to act on about corporate greed and abuse. Cool. Um, one other person, Chanu Lee. She works in, in low-income housing. Um, my background is more in housing finance. Mm. I, had, I taught myself housing finance, and I taught myself this stuff. Uh, but Chanu is more on the development side for low-income housing. And she would be very good. I want to speak to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just email me and I'll I'll send you. It sounds like Susan Harmon was, would be somebody you want to start with. Definitely, yeah. Dan, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Good. I'm glad you had fun. All right. I'm going to go eat, sing, okay. dance. Have fun. <laughs> you enjoy your day. Thanks. Thank Bye -bye. you, Dan. Bye-bye. Hello again. You can find more about all of Dan's work at communitydevelopmentfinance.org and specifically about the Community Check Caching project at communitycheckcaching.org. I highly suggest you go and check them out. Obviously, check caching is kind of particular to the United States, but all of the projects that Dan is working on that you can find and all of the information that he has published and everything that he explains about the financial systems is relevant to all of us. So I highly suggest you go and have a look. Um, and frankly, if you're interested in setting up a similar kind of thing in your state or in your country to help low income and very low income people, get in touch with him. He's an expert in this field. And he also, believe you me, he knows everybody in the alternative economy space and things are really happening in San Francisco. So go and have a look, go and send him an email. Um, I'm sure he would love to hear from you. Also, please go and sign up at platformenterprise.com to the mailing list where you can get uh, these podcast episodes delivered to your inbox. Why is that important? Well, social media sucks. <laughs> and also you can choose a paid subscription, which really supports me and my work. And it facilitates me to spend the time going out and getting these fantastic guests who have so much knowledge to share. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. See you next week.